0: Hello and welcome to the third of our professional photo podcasts. As always, it's time to make a brew, relax, and turn up the volume as we bring you a fortnightly slice of everything you need to know from the world of professional photography. My name is Matty Graham, I'm contributing editor on the magazine, and joining me at the end of the line as always is the main man himself, Mr. Terry Hope, editor of Professional Photo. So thanks for joining us, and you should be getting used to the podcast now, but if you're new, what can you expect from Terry and myself? Well, we're aiming to bring you as much variety as possible but for sure we'll be talking about the latest product news answering your questions speaking to the industry's leading players and exploring everything that goes into making a professional picture in today's competitive industry so terry it's been two weeks since we last chatted what have you been up to
1: well uh lots of things really uh getting getting the issue out the door was what we were talking about last time that's happened uh it's now been published uh it was in the shops yesterday so uh That's really nice. Obviously, we've been uh, digital only for three issues and uh, very happy with the way that went. But it is nice to have a physical issue back out there in the shops. And, uh, yeah, we're already getting quite a a lot of good response to it as well, which is nice to know. Uh, We've got a Bob Carlos Clark picture on the cover. So that's uh, that's created quite a lot of interest. Uh, Obviously, Bob is still one of those photographers that uh, creates a lot of attention still manages to shock people all this time on uh and so that's that's really good and um yeah it's it's going well and um i know that people are uh, are able to get hold of it because i've had a lot of feedback on it so it sounds as though it's getting into the shops and that the uh, there's enough shops open for people to find it so that's all good
0: excellent well
1: as you can tell by my slightly
0: flustered uh, voice today i've had a busy week and I have been filming more automotive stuff, but two very different vehicles. The first one, a big JCB tractor um, that could do up to forty miles an hour. By the way, tractors are pretty fast these days, um, and a slightly faster Aston Martin DBX, which is um, it's Aston Martin's new sort of SUV, which could do a lot faster than forty miles an hour. But won't tell exactly how fast I drove that car because I might get into trouble. Um, but as always, we need to say a big thank you to Sennheiser, who have kindly supported the uh, podcast. And as always, we're using their gear to record uh, the podcast, uh, the amazing Sennheiser Mark IV True Condenser microphone. And we're both you know, using those lovely headphones that they sent us. So thanks again, uh, Sennheiser, for so that the continued support. But I think we've got a lot of news to talk about because today's podcast is going to be slightly different. We're going to hear from you know, one of the industry's real experts in his field, uh, so it's quite an honour for us to talk to this guy, but we won't give it away just yet, because we've got a bit of news to talk about first. And to start off with, we're going to talk about the Sony as 73 It's finally here, Terry. Uh, um, I know it's been a bit of a wait, but it, it, it's finally here. And it's a bit of a strange one, because There was all this hype over this Sony A7S III. But then Canon bringing out the R5 slightly stole their thunder. But I think it's still still well worth uh, talking about. Um, So let's have a little chat about this camera because it's a very important one for videographers. I mean, obviously, you can still use it for stills. But, you know, this is the camera that a lot of videographers have been waiting for. Because the A7S III shoots 4K up to 120, features uh, IBIS, a huge ISO range, dual cards, both SD and CF Express, um, and in a move that will will hear many a cheer from Sony shooters, they've finally redesigned that menu system, which is a bugbear for a lot of Sony shooters. But I mean, how, how relevant do you think this camera is now,
1: um, given that Canon have launched the R5? I think very, very relevant. Um, you're right about the menu system. Obviously, um, it's now been separated into uh, stills and video side, which is uh, something I know an awful lot of people have been asking for. So uh, it does sound as though uh, Sony have been listening to feedback and they've uh, they've responded to that. Um, there's also uh, the fact that um, they're uh, very insistent that it has no heat issues. Uh, obviously, we've not had a chance to try it out and and to verify that, but. Um, that's what Sony are claiming, and and of course, given that um, with the with the R5, Canon's R5, there seemed to be a lot of uh, consternation about uh, perceived heating issues with that camera. Um, this is something that Sony are obviously claiming to be something that's um, given them a bit of an edge. So uh, it's been a very long wait, but uh, looking at the features of it, it, it looks really really good, and. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in it. Uh, Obviously, uh, it's one of those cameras that um, you would look at if you're very serious about your video production. It's typical of the A7 range, really, that they have lots of different varieties and you pick the one that suits what you want to do. Uh, This is definitely the filmmaker's camera. Absolutely. Well, let's,
0: let's, let's walk through a few of those features just in a bit more detail. So the sensor... It's 12-megapixel BSI CMOS sensor, and that is paired with the XR processor engine. So it's a very, very advanced, heavy-duty processing engine, and that's going to be able to deal with a huge amount of data that you know these video files are, are going to be producing. Uh, obviously, on-sensor phase detection, out-of-focus. Um, ISO range from 80 to 102-400, which is expandable all the way up to six hundred. So, I mean, if you were filming something like astrophotography, the northern lights in all their beauty, this is, you know, the, the ISO range of the A7S three is going to be, you know, absolutely up your street for this. Um, and, yeah, I mean, let's, let's let's sort of talk about the video specs because, you know, Sony have said 4K video up to what 120p and 60p for, for at least an hour's continuous filming, um, which is a big deal if you're shooting things like you know, commercial stuff where you're interviewing a CEO of a business, uh, or a documentary of sorts. Um, so 16 bit raw output, um, and obviously the, you know, the sort of fully articulated LCD, the, the five axis stabilization, that's going to, that's going to be key as well. There is a huge amount of pro features and this camera is going to cost less than the Canon R5, I believe. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a real, I think, uh, you know, sort of, you're going to be one of two tribes, aren't you? You're either going to fall firmly in the Canon tribe or, or firmly in the Sony tribe. And both cameras are just just amazing. And I think it's really good for the industry, especially these days and in the days of sort of the global pandemic, that brands are launching really exciting cameras. And you ha- you're not only one exciting camera, but you now have a choice when it comes to grid video cameras. Um if you, if I give you a bunch of money, Terry, which I, which I'm not going to do because I haven't got it. You know, <laughs> oh, at go the moment, on. Yeah. yeah. At, the, at the moment, which, which one would get your pick?
1: I've got to say I, I'd put a third camera into that mix as well, uh, oh, okay. and it is slightly different because it's more of a cinema one. But uh, the Panasonic S1H, I would say, would definitely be another proper uh, filmmaking camera that is in this kind of new mould. Uh, they're hybrids, aren't they? They look like traditional cameras, but yes. they are what they can do from a film uh, filmmaking point of view is is incredible. It, it, it's, it's something that would have been beyond the comprehension of people even three to four years ago. So I, I'd say the S1H would be right in there as well. Um, it's very difficult because I've got to say I've not seen and handled uh, the new Sony. So it's difficult to give a, a kind of hands-on um, uh, response to that. I'm looking forward to getting hold of that and and the R5, of course. And I think you you'll have a better you'll have a better feel once you've used it, you've shot some video with it. You you feel how it sits in the hands, how it's balanced, and all that kind of thing. Just looking at the paper specs of both of those, they are both going to do a fantastic job. I mean, they are going to be amazing cameras. And it just reflects, I think, uh, the importance of video for the uh, professional photographer these days because they are aiming at that market. Uh, the the hybrid, the person who shoots stills, but also shoots motion, but who needs something that is very, very high end and is going to produce a, a professional end result. And I think both of these cameras for sure will be able to do that. Um, I think sometimes it's almost like the camera you choose for your stills. You know, we have your your Nikon aficionados, uh, your Canon aficionados, your Olympus aficionados. Uh, They're all all different. There's a lot of personal choice in there. I think whichever way you go, you're not going to be disappointed. You're going to get something that really gives you what you need. Um, The heat issues, I think, could be interesting. Uh, So, again, it's a case of getting hold of the... um, the sony and just trying out if uh, what they say is absolutely true it could be that they have an advantage if they really do um, have come up with a camera that doesn't have heat issues which uh, the canon some people suggest that it does
0: right well yeah i think that's a really good answer and and i think you're right to to chuck in the panasonic uh, as as a, th- a third option you know i overlooked that and well done for pulling me up on it and you know, again, just sort of to reinforce that point. You know, three amazing cameras, and if you're getting into videography, which we've talked a lot about in the in the past uh, few uh, podcasts, then you know you really do have the gear at your fingertips now to to um, to make this happen. So let, let's let's leave the Sony there and move on to. The really sort of special uh, part of today's podcast, because obviously Olympus, our friends over Olympus, have had a really a bit of a roller coaster ride of late. But they're bouncing back big time with the launch of not one, but two products. And first up is the, the newest incarnation of the brand's popular EM10 camera. So this is the the Mark IV and sees further refinement. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a sort of uh, camera that's aimed uh, towards the sort of beginner element of, of photography so we won't spend too much time on that although it is you know a, a great b camera or a great camera for street photography if, if that's your thing but what i really want to talk about is the uh, new 100 to 400 f5 to 6.3 is lens so just to be clear this this lens delivers an effective focal length of 200 to 800 mil. When you, when you add in the two times crop factor from the Micro Four Third Mount. But it weighs just 1,120 grams, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, so, I mean, and what's more, when you add in the two times converter that Olympus now have, that gives you a maximum focal length of 1,600 mil. And I can hear wildlife photographers around know, right the world scrambling for their wallets here. But we wanted to talk to, <laughs> to one of the best out there. So we got in touch with Andy Rouse, who I know is a big, a big friend of yours, Terry. Um, yes. And we wanted to ask him his opinion. So Andy, thanks for joining us. You've obviously had the 100-400 to lens a little longer than most people.
2: How long have you had the lens and what have been your impressions so far? Well, I've had it... uh, Hi, Matty, I should say. Um, I've had it for six weeks in total, which is the minimum I'd want to test a new um, lens for. Um, Yeah, it's been awesome, actually. I mean, I I did receive it with some trepidation as, you know, these kind of lenses, I've tested them many, many times before. You know that they're not the pro-spec, in inverted commas, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, You know they're a compromise, and and with my style of photography, it's very unforgiving. I'm shooting in very low-light single encounters, animals that aren't that friendly, (laughs) that kind of thing. And I have to say, it's been astounding. Um, It's been astounding in terms of the sharpness that I've got out of my uh, images. I mean, I need a shave on most days, and I think my Kingfisher images, I could actually shave with them. (laughs) Um, They're so sharp. Uh, But it's also the 800mm range um, in in a package that I can actually hand-hold and, for me, crawl across the ground or walk through bushes or just carry around. Um, it means I'm very, very mobile and able to take advantage of the situations I've managed to get myself into. Great stuff. Well, we'll we'll jump back to the dimensions in a bit. But
0: first of all, I mean, you're obviously one of the UK's best known wildlife photographers. In what photo situations will you be using this lens? And how does it compare? How does the versatility of the 100 to 400 millimeter focal length compare to the lenses that you're perhaps used to using most of the other time?
2: With the Olympus system, you mean? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah yeah. Well, I've I've obviously, you know, the 300 f4 has been my go-to lens because it translates on the Olympus system into an effective 600mm lens. So, to have a 600mm f4 that I can actually carry around rather than break my back has been astounding. And I've been traveling the world with it. But I'm well known in my career for not wanting to use fixed lenses because I uh, for me, uh, composition is all important and a fixed lens decides the composition for you. So, I've been wanting 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 Olympus to bring out a bigger zoom and we all know that there's the rumors of this pro zoom that they've now Said that they're going to bring out in the winter Um, So when they said, you know, oh we have got the 100 to 400, you know It was a big surprise to me because no one really knew about it. I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good It's a you know, effectively 200 to 800. So for me, it Changes my mindset about what I can shoot and I haven't taken the 300 mil out um, in the six weeks Uh, One because obviously I want to give this a test but two, I don't need to because the, the the kind of successes I've had with this lens where, you know, I've either had to get to 800mm, which is brilliant, or I've had to be able to zoom back as something like a hair, for example. You know, I do it at 800mm and it's great. And then it decides for no apparent reason just to run towards you. <laughs> um, and then it runs towards you and stops and looks at you. You're going to get the shot of your life except with the 300. I'm going to get its ear. Um Whereas with the zoom, I can zoom right back and still get it, and I could also take habitat shots. So I can do, you know, I can work a scene. I can take a subject in the habitat. I can zoom in and take a more of a portrait. I can zoom back and take a bit more behaviour. It allows me to really work a scene to to the max, which is what I need to do as a pro. Excellent,
0: excellent. Well, just uh, jumping back to the dimensions, you mentioned it quickly. I mean, this lens is yep. twenty twenty centimeters long, and it weighs just over a thousand grams. What yep. difference does using a feather like weight lens like that make it to the way you shoot you know how does it change the way you work
2: well the 300 mil weighs about um 340 grams more i think so that that you know when i first used that it was a it was a massive change what i can do i guess i'm used to the olympus system now and believing in it and trusting in it um but yeah having this zoom capability that up to 800 mil um it's just it's just been brilliant and i've been posting images uh with approval from olympus uh, for six weeks, but without the EXIF um, in it, and I have to say the reaction has been astounding from the users on social media. Everyone thinks it's the pro lens and not the 100-400. Um, so yeah, it's made a real difference getting to this 800mm range, you know, and I don't worry much about this f6.3, that doesn't affect me at all. Um, it's got really fantastic bokeh at 800, so... Yeah, I have to say that it, it's. I'm kind of used to using it. You know, it sounds a bit disappointing. I know there's no magic answer here. <laughs> I'm so used to using now the light lenses that they have. Had you asked me a year ago, you know, when you first did the videos with me, I was like, oh, it's fantastic. And it, but now I'm kind of used to it. You know, and um, so for me, it's just another lens. I mean, it's sitting down on the floor here next to me. It's going out with me tomorrow morning, and it's the and it's my lens of choice. The 300's not going out. I'm just going out with the 1x, and the 100 to 400, and that's it. Fantastic, Grace. Well, can you tell the listeners a bit more about
0: the image quality from the lens? Because I know they'll be really interested in that.
2: Yeah, um, I was surprised at it too. Um, obviously, you have to take these lenses with a pinch of salt. It's not a 2.8 lens. Um, it's not a fixed focus lens. And so you have to realise that there will be a small, and I mean small degradation in quality between this at 800 maybe, and a 600 f4 that costs 14 grand. Um, but I think the the difference is marginal. And I have to say, my Kingfishers... Um, I couldn't see any difference from, you know, a lens that's ten times the price. Um, now, I shot them in really beautiful light, well that's my that's that's my role in life, that's what I do. I only shoot in beautiful light, that's, that's what I like to do. But it's still, you know, the job of the camera and the lens to produce something sensational, where you can see every detail. And certainly I can see every single detail on them um, in the backlight that I shoot a lot. It's been very, very good um, at giving me enough detail on that when I want it. Um, Of course, you know, these kind of lenses, they they struggle a tiny bit in really low, ultra low light backlight conditions, you know, before the sun is up. Sometimes I'm shooting half an hour before the sun is up of a hair or something, um, and it gets there, but it, you know, obviously doesn't get there quite as much as a 2.8 lens would be, but I don't have an f 28 800 You know, so you have to have a balance here and a compromise about the fact that you want to shoot with an 800mm lens. It allows you to sit further away from a subject, whether you're shooting macro or non-macro. Let's talk about macro in a minute. Uh, But it allows you to sit further away and get a much more relaxed subject so you get better pictures. So for me, it's a massive compromise and it's a win-win. There's nothing about it that I don't like.
0: Well, I mean, you brought it up, let's talk about macro, and this lens has got a closest focusing distance of just 1.3 metres across the entire zoom range. How how does that play out in the field?
2: Well, I can't admit to being a macro expert, and you know me. Um, I mean, last year, I I couldn't dream of taking macro or flowers, but during lockdown, I've become a macro specialist doing all kinds of stuff. Um, So for me, to get butterflies, I'm working on a project at the moment on marbled white butterflies, and to get butterflies... um, uh, kind of the way that I have, they're a bit flighty first thing in the morning, you know, so I'm able to sit back, use the 800mm, zoom through vegetation, so it throws the foreground out, it throws the background out, gives a really beautiful image in the middle. And of course, the, the butterfly, for example, is relaxed. Um, I did the same with some grasshoppers, you know, they're jumping all the time every time you move, so if you sit further back, you get a really nice picture, and of course, it's throwing the background out a little bit, which is what a lot of people want. And you also get the image stabilization benefits um, of the camera. So, um, yeah, with macro, it's made a really, really big difference. Excellent. So imagine if you were
0: starting out in your career again. This lens, <laughs> this lens is, um, is £1,100. Um, I tell myself a lot of things. Yeah, go on. <laughs> go on. Well, um, this lens is £1,100. It gives you effective focal length of 200 to 800. Is, is this probably the best value lens uh, you've used?
2: It's incredible. Uh, It's just outrageous. I mean, for the price and the range, um, you know, I mean, I I look at these lenses and and I've looked at these lenses before from other manufacturers, you know, that have such a range. And I've always been so disappointed and I expected this time to be disappointed and returning it to Olympus saying, this isn't for me. I'll wait for the pro lens. Um, And when I rang them up and they said, you're going to send it back. And I said, you're not having it back in the rest of your natural life. Um, I think they were surprised, and I think, yeah, for any amateur out there, or any professional, to be honest, because it's, you know, we shouldn't say it's an amateur-quality lens. That's insulting to amateurs. It's a pro-quality lens, because I'm pro, I use it, and it's good enough for me. So, yeah, I think it's an astounding lens for the money. And when you put it on a, a Mark III, you know, Olympus omd one Mark III, you know, that's a very, very small, compact passage, package that's incredible. Then all you've got to get is, like, a 12-100 to 100 or something like that. Um, and then you've got the most amazing travel package that you can take in the smallest briefcase. Um, and in this day and age, with planes and you know people trying to nickel your stuff, the more you look normal without having a massive lens, the better it is. And I can't wait till I travel again. Uh, I'm going back to India hopefully in November, things all all, all things permitting. And I'll be taking this hundred to four hundred as the main tiger lens. Nothing else. Wow. Well, well, I mean I'm I'm
0: sure already you've filled up many many memory cards worth of images, but have, is is there already a favourite image that you've taken with the 100 to 400 lens?
2: Yeah, there would be. It's the iconic hair that I've put on social media where it's really, really backlit. Oh, we missed behind it. It was really, really beautiful. I managed to crawl up to it. And again, because the lens is so light, I crawled about 100 metres across reasonably open ground with it in my camouflage gear. And then, you know, when you lift it up, you're not lifting up a great big lens. You've got a very small lens. You can be very versatile with it. It locked on straight away to the hair and boom. And it gave me the quality I wanted. I mean, it, it, it gave me the picture. It allowed me to take it still at 800mm range. So I think that's one of my favourites. I've just done a lot of little owls at the nest in the past week. Um, and the fact that I can be at 800mm from them has made them stay in the trees and watch me. And it's been, it's been great. So I think yeah, I think if you ask me on a daily basis, I'll have a different favourite image on a daily basis. But I think it's probably the hair.
0: Great, stuff. Well, where can our listeners find out more about your reviews on this lens?
2: Well, I've got a brand new website called Wild Bunch. And you can get to it from my website on my social media. Uh, And the idea, it's it's using all the best things that I discovered about myself during lockdown, that I could make a a Wild Angle uh, YouTube show, and I'm quite good at webinars on Zoom. So we've combined all of those into one new website. They can get a free membership, and the Olympus Review is on the free membership side of the site. They can base some pay-per-view content of our Wild Angle shows, and they can join up for membership and get me chuntering at them every month get everything included. So it's going to be on there. Uh, so social media is the link for that or the front of my website, andyrouse.co.uk. And social media, I am at Wild Rouse. Well, I mean, it was great to hear from Andy there,
1: Terry, wasn't it? And, and what a fantastic lens. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? And um, I mean, Andy was talking about the price of it there. And uh, that that's incredible. I mean, I... I remember the days, uh, obviously, of um, silver halide film cameras and lenses that could do that kind of job. You need uh, you need a forklift truck to carry them around and and uh, and the mortgage that would be probably not unadjacent to what you'd pay for a, a small flat in central London uh, to pay for them. And um, it, it's moved on so much. Uh, whatever you think about four thirds, and I know. Some people absolutely love it. Other people, maybe they're more focused on full frame. But it really has opened that door. It's it, For people like uh, um, wildlife photographers like Andy and, and, and sports photographers, it's given them equipment that is absolutely mind-blowing in terms of um, the size of it, the, uh, the weight of it and the price of it. It's incredible you can get that kind of performance for that kind of money. Definitely, and I think the big difference
0: comes when you actually get these things in your hand and test and try them because, you know, we've talked a lot about specifications and and numbers on on paper is one thing, but when you're out in the field and you have to you know, climb over a fence or sort of crawl through undergrowth to to actually get this, this subject in the frame, that's when the lighter gear really comes into its own. So if you have the opportunity, you know, try out one of these lenses, try out one of these Olympus cameras, because they're really great. And, you know, I think it'll be a eureka moment for you. Um, I mean, there's, there's so much great kit out there. We've, we've mentioned that already, but I think it's really encouraging that Olympus are still pushing ahead
1: and, and launching this amazing sort of kit. I think what Olympus would say, it just gives you a choice. And uh, you, you can choose to to go full frame if that's what you want to do. But uh, this is this is actually a choice that uh, and, and even professionals can go for because if you uh, if you think that um, four thirds is going to give you maybe um, not the quality you need, I think you really need to have a look at uh, you know some of the um, the output from the Olympus cameras and uh, and and just have a look and, and they are totally up there they're they're completely up to professional standards so it's another option absolutely well time is running out but let's try
0: and squeeze in a couple of reader questions because every episode we you know we try and sort of reach out and talk to our listeners and one of the questions we've had back is from Lucy in Suffolk who asked I shoot fine art abstracts uh, which I appreciate is a little bit niche however I want to widen my commercial prospects Do you have any advice? So we're talking fine art abstracts, which is, you know, as she she, uh, admitted, a niche genre. But she wants to widen her commercial
1: appeal. What what can she do? Uh, I I would say the first thing you need to do is to let people know that you're out there. And uh, you have to have a very, very good website. You have to have a good marketing uh, campaign. People need to see your work. They probably need to see it in the flesh as well. So... I would say you need to be getting exhibitions organized. You need to be showing your work. There's things like the affordable art, art fair, for example, um, which uh, I imagine probably hasn't happened this year because of everything that's been going on. But in a normal year, that would be one of the big shows, but there's lots of other shows as well. Uh, and in terms of an exhibition, I think you have to think beyond putting it into a conventional gallery. You could maybe look at a, a local coffee shop, restaurant, pub or somewhere like that that would be prepared to put your work on its walls so that people can see it in uh, in an environment and uh, and actually get a real feel for it what what it looks like in the flesh and um i would also uh, look at a, a bit of the uh, self-publishing route because it's actually much more cost efficient these days to self-publish uh it used to be off the scale expensive uh, these days you could look at uh, not only fine art prints that you could do for um, for your collectors, you could also look at doing maybe a fine art book, uh, a limited edition fine art signed book. They can be commercially very viable these days and uh, there's some very, very good printers around who would do a great job for you. Oh, that's that's a really good advice, Terry. I
0: mean, you actually sort of mentioned a few things that I was going to cover. Um, yeah, sorry was, about that <laughs> no no it's fine it's fine it's good advice um what can i add to that i mean you know as, as terry said I, I i would start local start you know with the things around your neighborhood so you know be it uh, coffee shops even even approaching um local hospitals or hospices and you know if your art is is beautiful and it will brighten people's day think about sort of you know showcasing your art there because you know you get something out of it, you get the exposure. But also, you know, these people who perhaps aren't having a great day get to see some beautiful art as well. And, you know, I know times aren't great, but hosting an exhibition is a great idea because, you know, it, it, it generates buzz and publicity. And then from that, you can then send out press releases covering the exhibition. So that there is, you know... A, a gold mine of information there and uh, I hope you get something out of that I'm just glancing down to the next question which comes from Richard and this is a great question and it says what's the most dangerous
1: photo shoot you've been on uh myself um yeah it's uh I, I've been very very fortunate uh, as uh, uh as a journalist to go on some very interesting uh, assignments um I did go on a Pirelli calendar shoot once to the uh, the Seychelles believe it or not and uh, wow. We, yes, so uh, obviously um, a lot of the time we were travelling to locations on boats and high speed um, high speed uh, jet boats and things like that. And uh, we were travelling very fast and we hit something. I think it might have been um, something underwater and and the boat literally took off and everybody kind of then landed and water kind of flying in from all sides. And we kept on going like nothing had happened, but, um, yeah, nobody was quite sure what we hit. So that was quite interesting. And, uh, there was another time with, um, with Canon, uh, took, uh, took some journalists to, um, uh, to, to, on a safari. And, uh, and again, that was, that was fantastic. And, um, but, uh, I managed to, uh, with the, um, one of the Canon representatives, we managed to get separated from the party and, uh, I think there was a great commotion when they realized we weren't with them and uh, they sent a search party out and everything. But uh, fortunately, we weren't eaten by anything. So, um, yeah, I suppose that was probably in the in the scheme of things, probably fairly alarming, but more for other people than myself. But, yeah, I, I can't top of my head think of anything much more dangerous than that. How about yourself, Matty?
0: Well, I, I think those two examples you've given of, you know, perhaps running over a Russian submarine with a with a boat and then sort of nearly being <laughs> eaten by lions are, are pretty scary. I mean, I did a shoot. Um, I went to the Faroe Islands um, a couple of years ago now. Uh, I was intending to go back literally the week that uh, lockdown uh, came in. So I missed out on that. Um, and, you know, we got off the plane and. It was a blizzard, you know, sort of a really heavy snowstorm. And they were like, yeah, don't worry, it'll it'll clear up by by the morning. And, you know, the next morning it hadn't. And the whole reason we'd been to this uh, country, this beautiful country of the Faroe Islands, was to climb a mountain called uh, Slataratinda. And um, it's quite famous because because of the curvature of the earth. At the top of this mountain, you can apparently see uh, further than anywhere else on earth through line of sight. Um, so, you know, I was hoping for, for, you know, good weather, good visibility. And we just didn't get that. We got blizzards. Um, so we spent, you know, a good couple of hours trying to get up this, this mountain. And we, you know, we sort of got pretty much to the top and got the shots that sort of needed. Um, but to get back down, it would have taken a long while. And I was wearing these big, thick ski pants. Um, and there weren't any, many rocks. It was quite sort of gradual slope. So I just sat down and basically slid all the way down to the bottom of this mountain. Um, So what took two and a bit hours to sort of get to the top, I was down in about two and a half minutes. Um, (laughs) So so that was a lot of fun. Um, Again, in the Faroe Islands, uh, I was shooting a waterfall that dropped straight in from from a lake, dropped straight in off a cliff into the North Atlantic. And, you know, you know what the North Atlantic is like. It's this wild, wild ocean. Oh, Yes and the angle that i wanted to get meant i had to get very very close to the edge and as any landscape photographer will tell you you've sort of almost got this built-in warning alarm in your brain that sort of starts to sound when you know you're getting close to the edge and you're starting to push past your limits um and the closer i got the sort of louder the bells were ringing in my ears but I, I needed to get this shot so i i i got as far as i dared towards the edge but i mean if you know I had phone with me and things like that, but if if I'd gone over, that would have been the end of me. Um, and and these are the risks that photographers have to take, um, and the people who view these images don't perhaps realise how much effort and how much risk has gone into them, uh, especially in the professional market where you're you're pushing yourself absolutely to the limits. Um, but that's that's a great question richard and a real sort of trip down memory lane for me there and i think for you too terry so that was that was really good fun
1: yeah no absolutely i, I was just going to add one more in very quickly actually uh, and it wasn't me at all but it was a fellow journalist who uh, who got what sounded like the trip of a lifetime to go and judge a, a photographic competition in kuwait all expenses paid and um he happened to be there when the uh, the iraqi kuwait war broke out Oh, and, and ended up being a hostage in the country, I think, for at least three to four weeks before they managed to extract him. So, uh, yeah, um, I think that trumps anything I managed to do. I was going to say that is taking it to the to the next level. Yes. Who, who won the competition, though? <laughs> uh, well, absolutely, yeah. He had plenty of time to judge it. Well, that's all I can say. <laughs>
0: fantastic great stuff well thanks for your time today terry and of course again thanks to andy for all those great words and insightful knowledge into the lens um and next fortnight join us again for some more photo talk and some more photo fun and until there until then rather enjoy your photography